So we get to the end, or near the end of the letter to the Romans. This letter from Paul that we've been looking at for the past four months or so, or, or even if you're reading it, and we get to this last part, and we're probably kind of tired by the time we get to that point. If you sit down and read the letter to the Romans, you get through 13 chapters, and there's lots of dense theology, and then all of a sudden Paul's talking about what to eat and what not to eat. And you feel like, really? Because usually you're reading something, and you're, getting, and you're waiting for that big climax at the end, and you're all excited about like, oh, where is he going with all this? Where is he going with all this deep theology? And he gets to the end, and he says, yeah, some people like vegetables, some don't. Some people observe special days, some don't. But yeah, just get along with one another. And you think, really, Paul? That's it? And maybe we feel like it's a little bit anticlimactic. But what I want to suggest today as we look at it is, this is what Paul's been building to the whole time. That this is what ben Paul has been getting at. So again, this letter to the Romans, Paul is writing probably from the city of Corinth. He's an early follower of Jesus. He's writing to this church in Rome. And the church in Rome is composed of a mixed group of people. There are Jews and Gentiles, and there have been a lot of issues between those two groups. The Jewish people had probably started out of the synagogue, the church in Rome. Some of them had been kicked out of Rome by one of the Roman emperors, and so the Gentiles came in and they started running the church, and then the Jews were welcomed back into the church. And so now there's these two groups that have two cultural backgrounds, two different ways of viewing the world, two different understandings of things. You have the Jewish people who have this long history that they were the chosen people of God. That God had chosen them as a special people to be a blessing to the nations. He had given them laws and rules, and they had this long heritage. And then you've got the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, who had all of a sudden been welcomed in. So you've got the old-timers and the newcomers. And there's these conflicts between these two groups. And what a lot of scholars are starting to recognize or at least promote is this idea that really all this deep theology at the beginning of it, and sometimes we think of the letter of Romans, if you've been around church for a while or heard this letter to Romans, it's often seen as this deep systematic theology that Paul sat down to write all that he knows and the big arguments about things like justification by faith. But I think Paul's letter to the Romans, Paul was a pastor. So Pastor Paul is writing to this group of people, trying to help them understand these conflicts. And everything that goes before it leads up to this. He's painted this picture of that all people have chosen their own way. They've given up the glory of God. In other words, they've chosen their way over God's way. They've sinned against God. And so he puts the Jews and Gentiles, you're on equal footing there. Everybody's sinned. But then he also says, and you're all saved in the same way through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's no difference between them. So he's laid the whole foundation of saying, you're equal on everything. You're on the same footing. In fact, you've been brought into the same family. And so now he's getting to this part and he's beginning to, in chapter 12, beginning to point to like, what does this all mean? And so if we were to flip back a couple pages, we would see that what God is talking about is a transformed mind. So Paul talks about the need for our transformed mind and our love for others. And he kind of paints it in general pictures. Well, we're supposed to love one another, put one another. But Pastor Paul knows something. He knows that sometimes just making general statements aren't enough. That it's not just enough to say, go love one another. He's starting to say, well, what does that look like in practice? What are the specifics of this? How do we live in a group where all are in need of God's grace, 
and all are equal recipients of that grace. And so he refers to two different groups. The strong and the weak is kind of how many translations do it, or we could say maybe the powerful and those without power. There's these two groups. And the best understanding probably of those is the one group is the weak. And again, that weak, who likes to be called weak? Nobody likes to be called weak. It seems like a derogatory term, but he's simply talking most likely about a group of mostly Jewish followers, probably not entirely, but who understand that part of their faithfulness to God, part of their way of following the life of Jesus is to continue to follow the laws of Moses, to go back to the Old Testament, all these laws that were given to the people of God, particularly the boundary marker laws. And so the people of Israel were given laws to kind of set them apart from the other nations, the things they ate, the holidays they observed, the rite of circumcision, all these things, they set them apart. It wasn't necessarily that eating pork was sinful, but it was a way to set them apart. And so they had grown up, they had lived their lives set apart from the nations by following and adhering to all these different rules and laws. And then they heard about Messiah Jesus, and they began to follow him, but they still have this long tradition. They said, God, God encouraged us to live this way, and they think, a part of my faithfulness in following Jesus is to continue to live out those laws. Now, this group of people is different from some other ones in the New Testament, so we get them confused. They're not thinking that they're saved by following these laws. That's not the issue. They don't think that they need to do these plus believe in Jesus in order to be saved. But what they understand is that part of my faithfulness, part of my lived expression of following Jesus is to continue to live out these laws. They know that they are saved by grace and by faith alone, that it's through their trust, their allegiance to Messiah Jesus, that that saves them. But then they say, well, what does it look like to live as a follower of Jesus in Rome? And they say, well, part of it is to continue to follow these laws of Moses. So that's this group, the weak. Probably mostly Jewish, but maybe some Gentiles mixed in there. The other group is what Paul calls the strong. And the strong have a different view. They weren't probably raised on all the traditions of Moses. They didn't know all these boundary markers and these laws. And they come in and they hear this message that Paul is proclaiming here and that they'd heard proclaimed previously that salvation to be saved is by grace through faith alone, that it's through this absolute allegiance to Jesus. And so they've given that. And part of their understanding is that when I give my life to Jesus, there are a lot of things that aren't significant to the way I live, that I can choose and I can decide what to live. The things I eat, eh, they're, not, they're not important to following Jesus. That's not how I set myself apart as a follower of Jesus. And so we have these two groups that are kind of in opposition. And what happens when you have two groups of people who have different ideas about the way to live? You get a little bit of tension between the two. So you've got the weak over here, right? So they're thinking, my faithful expression of following Jesus is to continue these laws and continuing the way I eat and observing special holy days. And they're looking over at the strong. And the strong are, you know, they got their bacon breakfast going on. And they're like, oh, I can't believe you're doing that. This is horrible. This is not the way a good follower of Jesus lives. And then you got the strong over here. Really, you're still hung up on that old-fashioned way of living? No, that's not, you don't need to, why are you so hung up on what you eat? It's all about faith and freedom. It's a good thing we don't have those things in church anymore, right? <laughs> These conflicts between two different groups, groups who, 
who look down on one another. See, and that's what Paul's getting at, that it's all about this, about the weak judging the strong and the strong despising the weak. And it's important to understand, these aren't just matters of personal taste. But the Jewish people, the weak, they're believing themselves to be faithful to Scripture. They're about this absolute fidelity to Scripture. And the Gentiles, they're talking about freedom in Christ. So this isn't just a matter of, well, I like blue and you like red or what kind of song. This is something deeper than that. And so what Paul is getting at is a lived theology. He's getting at, how do we live this out? How do we live this out in community when we have groups who understand things differently? He takes all that's said before and then starts to apply it to them. And so he starts off in Romans chapter 14, verse 1. Accept the one whose faith is weak or the one whose faith is without power, without quarreling over disputable matters. So accept them. Better than, better than that, I like the word welcome them. Acceptance, especially in America in 2023, we kind of have these ideas of tolerance. Accepting, we can sometimes think of, well, just put up with them. This is more than just tolerate the other group. This is welcome them. I mean, even the language we use, if I were to tell you to welcome someone, that's different than tolerate them, right? Tolerate them, you just like, welcome them, is it to invite them in. So this is what he's doing. And then he said, without quarreling over disputable matters. And now this is important because this is key. It's about things that are disputable, about things that are the tension. We'll come back to this later. It's not just about, it's not about the solid foundations of faith. It's about things that people disagree on. In this case, eating. One does and one doesn't. And he goes on. He says, the one who eats everything, in other words, who's free to eat, not, not the one who eats everything. We know, you know. But the one who, who doesn't pay attention to which things are, you know, set aside must not treat with contempt the one who does not. So the strong aren't to look over and say, oh, come on. Why are you so, why are you so hung up on all these old-fashioned ways? And the one who does not eat everything, that's the weak, must not judge the one who does. No contempt, no judgment. So he's not taking sides. Paul isn't saying, well... One side's hung up and one side's not. And he doesn't give them instructions to try and convince the other one. He didn't say, well, you are strong in your faith. You need to help those people who are weak and build them up. No, he says what? Welcome them. Why? Because God's accepted them. Because they're all servants of the Lord. In other words, if you're looking out and you're saying, well, come on. He's saying, Jesus Christ died for each and every one of you. God welcomed each and every one of you. So do the same thing, people. And then he goes on in this same sort of language. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall. And they will stand for the Lord is able to make them stand or the Lord makes them stand. So God is the one who rules over all. And then he goes on sim something similar about sacred days. So he set up this picture of people eating and not eating, this tension between them. And then he goes on talking about sacred days. He says, one person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Make up your mind that, that this is something you're set on and it's about being in their own mind. But then he says, whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. And whoever eats meat does so to the Lord. For they give thanks to God and whoever abstains does so to the Lord and give thanks to God. And you hear that language of to the Lord. In other words, 
It's not a matter of simply that they, the fact that they practice these differences, but why are they doing it? They're doing it out of their understanding of what it looks like to live a faithful life of following Jesus. They're doing this and saying, this is to the Lord. The weak aren't sitting there and saying, oh, I eat this way and I'm doing it to show how good I am. He's saying, when we're doing it the right way, when we're practicing the right way, we're doing it to God. We're saying, this is what I, God, it looks like, I think, to live out a faithful life. And the strong are called to do the same thing. So this is what Paul is looking at. He's like, and he's saying, then he assumes, and part of what he's doing too is he's assuming that each group is doing it out of the best motives. And this is where we struggle sometimes as people, or sometimes I struggle, is to assume the best motives of another person. Sometimes we see somebody doing something and maybe we think, oh, well, they do that to prove how much more holy they are than I am. You can imagine maybe the strong looking at the weak and saying, oh, yeah, sure. The only reason they don't eat the pork, the only reason they, you know, don't, they pass on the shrimp plate is because they want to show that they're much better than I am. Paul's saying, don't, don't, don't do that. What you need to do is look and say, I'm going to believe the best about my brother or sister over here and believe that the reason they're doing that is because they believe it's the faithful way to live. I want to believe that they're doing it out of faithfulness to the Lord. And he calls us to do the same thing that sometimes, not sometimes, we have and we know people who, who understand and practice their faith differently than we do, who have different convictions and different ideas. And there's a temptation sometimes to look at people who maybe have a different standard than us and think, oh, well, they just think they're better than I am, or they're trying to prove how holy they are. And what Paul's saying is, that's not your place to figure that out. Your place is to assume the best and say, I think they're probably doing that because they think that's the best way to live like Jesus. And so one of the encouragements that Paul gives to us is, as we see people around us living out their faith in different ways, we'll come back to this. This doesn't mean believing absolute different things in terms of the bedrocks of the faith about Jesus is the only way to something. That's not what he's talking about. Nor is it talking about issues of morality but it's talking about issues of faithful practice, about live theology, and it's saying, can we believe the best about the other? So his basic argument to this point is, if it's not essential, and that's always the big question, isn't it? What's essential? Then differences are okay. And that judgment or disdain is not okay. It's not okay to disdain other people. In other words, Christ died for all and God welcomed all. And Paul doesn't deny that these are important issues to the people involved. Paul never says, oh, well, just get over it. Those are... Paul doesn't say those don't matter. But what he says is there's something greater than that. And the something greater is the lordship of Jesus. And when he talks about this, he says, for none of us lives for ourselves alone and none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this reason, Christ died and returned to life so that we might be the Lord of both the living and the dead. And he's pointing to this, present, this idea that Jesus is with us when we're alive and when we're dead. Jesus is present at all times. And what matters to him is our life together. 
What matters to Jesus is our life together. And so he goes on in, in the later verses, and he basically says in verses 7 through 12 that everything in life up to death is focused on pleasing the Lord. Where he talks about this, and you hear this language of pleasing the Lord. So he's saying, whatever you do, do it to seek to honor God. On non-essentials, what matters the behavior if the behavior is done to glorify God. And then kind of in the closing part of this passage, he focuses on the strong because he realizes that some people might get hung up on it. And he talks about refraining from things when we might cause the other to stumble. So he's maybe talking to these who are strong and saying, you know that you can eat whatever you want. And he even Paul even makes that point. He says, for I am convinced that whatever you eat doesn't matter. Jesus talked about, it's not the food that comes in, but when it comes out of our mouth. Peter had this vision that all foods are clean. But what he says is, you know that and you're convinced of that, but not everyone is. So be careful about the way you behave so you don't become a stumbling block. And so that's where the tension comes in. The tension is, particularly for the strong, is they know and they're convinced, just as Paul is, that no food is unclean. That what we eat is not a significant part of our following Jesus. But at the other hand, we're also called not to be a stumbling block. And so the challenge, the wisdom in the Christian life is to know, how do I balance those two? How do I balance those two where I know something is not prohibited, but how can I make sure my exercise of my freedom doesn't affect the faith of someone else? And one of the things is, we don't want to malign freedom by insisting on our rights. And particularly as Americans, I mean, we, we talk a lot about our own rights. You know, my right to do this. And, and what he's getting at is like, make sure that your insistence on your rights don't affect other people too badly. Don't insist on your rights so much that you ignore the effect that it has on others. And that's what he's getting at here. So kind of coming back to this summary. We have convictions on non-essential matters. Our actions aren't sinful as long as they're done in faith. We have our individual conscience, but our conscience must be guided by our love for our sister or brother. And we're not to look down on others because of their choices. So as we think, so we look back at this, what's going on in, in Paul's day, and it's this issue of eating and holidays, and which days are holy days. And we understand maybe what Paul was getting at here was this group between the Jews and the Gentiles and this issues of their fidelity to Scripture and not eating certain foods and, and this other group who sought as freedom. But then we try and bring it forward 2,000 years. And we try and say, okay, how do we live that out if Pastor Paul were writing to us today? What would he talk about? And one of the challenges often is, what's non-essential? I tell you, I'm not going to solve that for you here today because it's not an easy solution to get at. But one thing is, this is about behavior. It's not about doctrine. Like I said, this is, this isn't, these aren't disputes about doctrine. It's about behaviors. And it's not about imposing something contrary to the gospel or calling immorality the work of the Spirit. This is not simply saying, 
But it becomes challenging sometimes because even in what some of us consider disputed matters, some will look at somebody else's being in sin because of that disputed matter. And so it's a challenge. The other is that really what it, we sometimes think of this as, well, we can read maybe this Paul thing and say, well, that's between me and God. And that's not what he's getting at. Paul is saying what you're doing is inconsequential, but what's significant is the community. He's saying these acts of the way we live, whether we live as the weak or as the strong, that's not so significant. What matters is how we live together. It's about respecting those differences. And so it's looking at the diversity that we have. And that's one of the big challenges is we tend to divide over these kind of things. We tend, as people, human beings, we tend to like to find groups of people who believe and behave and act the same way we do, who have the same understanding of things, who see things in the same way. And oftentimes we move around and we say, well, I, I got to find this group of people because you're not doing things the way that I like to do them. And so we find, to use the word, segregation. We, we separate ourselves. We, we, we put ourselves in buckets and we separate. And what Paul is getting at is that's not what God's design is. God's design is for a people to come together across these differences, across these boundaries. And so maybe we ask ourselves as we come forward to 2023, is like, who would be the weak and who would be the strong? And my suggestion there was, don't get hung up on labels. Because labels aren't a good thing. Because who's weak and who's strong may not always be clear. Because you may meet someone with a weaker faith, and I'll, I'll use that word in quotes, but people with a weaker faith can have really strong opinions. There may be somebody, so if we imagine someone who is convinced, for example, I used a couple of weeks ago, card playing, that, that playing cards is, um, is something that good followers of Jesus don't do. And so, in Paul's terms, he may label that as somebody who's weaker in the faith. But that person can have really strong opinions about that. A weak faith doesn't mean weak opinions. I mean, they can be absolutely convinced, or they can be absolutely convinced about this, and this is what it's about. And it, the truth is, as I was looking at this, it's hard to find clear parallels to this. Because the, the Jewish people, they had these laws given by Moses, but we can think about some of these. You know, so one, for example, might be the, the con consumption of alcohol. And in some traditions and something that people understand that the belief to the faithful way to live as a follower of Jesus is to avoid all alcohol. And then there might be another group who says, no. As I read things and I understand things, it's okay to consume alcohol. Now, Neither side would argue for drunkenness because the Bible talks about that. But you have these two different groups. And the question then is, how do these two groups live in tension with one another? And so I think part of the tension, part of the way to live is to not hold those up and to say, I'm going to live this way as a mark of my faithfulness. But I'm not going to use my, my habits, my practices 
to judge or be in contempt of the other. And so the challenge for the Christian congregation then, for the people in the church who disagree about those things, is to look at that other person and we'll imagine the one who is the weak, the one who thinks that alcohol, and again, I, weak and strong, again, are, are not because weak, we think of as inherently derogatory. I mean, generally, but the person who chooses to abstain from all alcohol and the person who sees it as okay. And so, one of the tendencies often then is to look at each other and say, oh, I can't believe you're going to, alcohol. don't you know the evils of alcohol and how much it can destroy families? And maybe that's coming out of personal experience and in different ways. And this other group saying, oh, but Jesus said you can drink anything. Jesus made wine at weddings. It's okay. And so you see what they're doing is they're, they're focusing on this matter that's disputable maybe, but they're getting hung up on. And what causes that, what happens then is this division between the two instead of simply acknowledging that maybe the person who chooses not to drink looks at the person who chooses to and says, I believe they're doing, I'm going to believe the best and believe that they're doing it out of their faithfulness to the Lord. That they're doing it out of their motives to give glory to God. And the person who believes that it's okay looks at the person who doesn't and doesn't despise them and think they're hung up and they're stuck in the past, but says, oh, I believe they're doing this out of a faithfulness to the Lord. Maybe it's something related to tattoos or care of creation or reading certain books or yoga or the Enneagram or women's role in the home or schooling choices. It's amazing all the tensions that we get. I remember one of the very first sermons that I ever preached. I was um, fairly new as a pastor and I was, went back to my home church and I was invited to preach and, and they were in the midst of a sermon series on the book of 1 Corinthians. And I think the pastor did this to me deliberately, but he gave me the passage, if you're familiar with it, on meat sacrificed to idols, which is much like this passage here. Um, and it's a tension between groups of what can be eaten and what cannot be eaten. And that's really the, the basis of the story. And, and this was probably around 2000, 2001. And so if you can remember back in the ancient days of the early 2000s, one of the cultural highlights of the time were the Harry Potter books. And there was tension in the churches, at least in some churches, over whether or not you should read Harry Potter or not. There were, there were, there were, the, there were the Potterites like, oh, this is great stuff. This is absolutely, we're learning all about these themes of redemption and ideas and using our imagination. This is like Narnia or the, Lords of the Lord of the Rings. And then the other group saying, no, this is witchcraft. This is evil. Don't be touching that stuff because you're going to sink into magic and the demons and Satan. And then there's the other group, Harry who? <laughs> so young Pastor Carl decided to talk about Harry Potter, <laughs> not realizing quite what a minefield he was stepping into. And my argument at that time, and I think it would still be my argument today, was this is a disputable matter. Whether or not you read Harry Potter or not is not a mark of your faithfulness. Now, I got a word or two from some people who were convinced that it was, that any reading of Harry Potter was a fall into Satanism. But I still believe and I'm still convinced that what Paul said in Corinthians and what he's saying here in the Romans is, this is a disputable matter. 
that we can't go to the Scripture and simply say, Paul says, don't read Harry Potter. Now, there are practices against the, there are statements in Scripture about the practice of witchcraft. But to simply read about them, I don't, I don't think is. So, if we have this group, and now we'll imagine this group of, this group, and so the one group would be the ones who say, no, you can't do that. That's not the practice. That's not what it looks like to follow Jesus. You need to absolutely avoid those kind of books. And the other group that says, no, I don't, I think that's disputable. I think it's okay to use your imagination. Now, we need to be careful and not fall into, not to think we can practice witchcraft or think these are real, real, but we can use our imagination. And Paul, here in Romans, he doesn't say that one side is right and one side is wrong. But what he says is, each side needs to be convinced in their own minds of the truth. Each side needs to believe that they're living it out as this is the way to faithfully live as a follower of Jesus. And each side needs to recognize that it's perfectly okay. So the group who's opposed to the reading of Harry Potter needs to look at this other group and say, I believe they're doing it out of their faithfulness to Jesus, and I believe that they think this is the best way to follow their faithfulness, so I'm going to remain in relationship and fellowship with them and call them my sister and brother in Christ. And the person over here who thinks that it's okay to read these books and sees the person over here who thinks they shouldn't, not to look down on them and say, I can't believe they're so hung up on this stuff. That's so stupid. That's ridiculous. Why would you even think that? But instead to look at them and say, I believe they're living out what they think is a faithful way to follow Jesus, and I'm going to call them my sister and brother in Christ, and I'm going to welcome them in. And in fact, because of that freedom, if I'm going to do something that somehow inhibits them, causes them to stumble, I'm going to avoid doing that. So maybe I don't give their kids the Harry Potter books to read. Maybe I don't talk about it. Maybe or maybe if I'm a pastor and I'm sitting there and I realize this is a problem for a lot of people in my congregation, maybe I don't use Harry Potter as an illustration because it might cause them to question and to wonder. And now, there's no perfect rules for this. There's no easy solution. I can't give you the formula. I can't give you the app that you pull up and decide, okay, is this going to cause my friend to stumble? Yes or no? Swipe left, swipe right. I don't know. But what we do is we say, we believe the best about others and we use the life of our faith. We use our convictions to express our faithfulness. We don't use our convictions to disdain or to judge others. And so that's what Paul is getting at here is to say, we all find different ways to live out faithfully what our life to Jesus looks like. There's lots of matters we may disagree on. We may find different ways of this is, I think, the proper way to live out my faith to Jesus. It may be the way that you practice your Sabbath. It may be this, the few foods you eat, the way you care for creation, all sorts of things. There's different ways we can live that faithfulness out. But the important thing is, how do we live out those convictions? Paul never says, don't have convictions. Paul doesn't even necessarily always get into which conviction is right or wrong. But what he asks is, when we live out our convictions, do we live them out as an expression of our faithfulness, or do we allow that expression of our convictions to begin to show contempt or disdain for the others? And that's why I like that focus on welcome, that we're connected, we need each other. 
that the other person takes precedence over my preferences. We all like what we like. But what Paul says is, what takes precedence? The precedence isn't my preferences. The precedence, the, what takes priority is the other person. And so he's picturing it out. He's saying, it's okay there are disagreements. And this is where it gets hard. It's okay if we disagree on things. It's okay if we disagree on things. But what's not okay is judging somebody else. What's not okay is using my freedom to make a stumbling block to someone else. And so a few years ago, in our congregation, we wrote something called a Covenant for Christian Community. And it was a way to talk about the way we live. We talked about like holy manners. It's, it's a way to live as a congregation, to think about the conversations. I'm going to read just a little bit of it for you. If you're ever wondering what it is, there's, it's, there's a large version of it posted in the conference room, the small kind of room off to the left as you exit the sanctuary there. And every month before our council meetings, we read this together as a reminder of kind of the manners that we go by in our church. And so this is the, the preamble, if you will. It says, as a body of believers brought together by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You hear that language that Paul used. I mean, this is what created the people that brought Jews and Gentiles together. It wasn't their preference for foods. It wasn't their preference for calories. What brought them together was the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is, we are called to live as a compelling community of Christian servants. In other words, the way we live makes a difference. The way we live is supposed to reflect God's love for us. And then he says, by God's grace and truth, empowered by the Holy Spirit, we commit to a life of remarkable love. And that's what Paul talked about Romans 12 and 13, we're talking about love and action. And so then what we did when we were putting this together, say, what does that love look like for us as a community? How do we live out that life of love? And I'm just going to read the first two. And the first one is recognizing every person's value as a member of the body of Christ. You hear that? This is the echoes of what Paul is getting at here is we recognize that every person has value. That each and every person, and then this one, which is the more acknowledging that everyone is at a different place in their walk with Jesus. Acknowledging that every person is at a different place in their walk with Jesus. In other words, some of us believe one thing, some of us believe a different way about the way it looks like to faithfully follow Jesus. And we acknowledge that. We don't look at the other person and say, well, you need to, you need to grow in your faith a little bit. That's not what Paul is calling to. Paul is not at this point saying, I mean, we're all encouraging one another to grow in our faith, but it's a careful way to do that. It's not simply looking at somebody's like, oh, you need to grow up, pal. That's not a very faithful way to, but instead acknowledging that every person is at a different place and that it's not even our responsibility to judge where they're at or where they're not at. But our responsibility is to love. But in church, we often create implicit rules about who's in and who's out. I mean, we probably within our own congregation have those rules. And one of the things, when we think about implicit rules, the implicit rules is you usually don't know what they are until when, until somebody breaks them, right? That we maybe have rules. We may have here at Fruitland Covenant Church ideas of what faithful following of Jesus looks like. And we've created some rules and some ideas about it. We're not even aware of those until somebody maybe crosses over those. We think, well, that's the faithful way to follow Jesus is, is this expression of your faith. 
Maybe it's simply it's something as simple as the way someone dresses, particular clothes, and we may look and say, oh, I can't believe a Christian would wear those kind of clothes. And we may not realize we have those rules because we all dress in fairly similar manner. But what if someone were to come in wearing something very different? or with tattoos, or behaving in a different way, or the kind of the language they use, all sorts of things. And so we do, but what we recognize here, what Paul is getting at, is it's not for us to decide who's in and who's out. Jesus decides that. Jesus decides who's in and out. And who's in and who's out is based on faith in Jesus. It's not based on all these other things. It wasn't based on the things they ate. It wasn't based on their calendar systems. It wasn't based on the books you read or whether you practice yoga or not. It's not based on your view of creation care or your view on the particular kind of music or what sort of lyrics you should use. It's not based on any of those things. What it's based on is our faith in Jesus. And what it's called to do is say, and what I want you to hear clearly is, I want you to live out your convictions. If you have a way that you believe it looks like to faithfully follow Jesus today, and you believe, you're convinced of that in your own mind, and you believe that's what it is, live those out. But at the same time, acknowledge that not everyone may have those same convictions. And so when the person on the pew across from you or behind you or in front of you has a different idea about the way to live out those convictions... Are you to judge them? Are you to despise them? What's our job? Welcome them. Say, we are sisters and brothers in Christ, and I welcome you. That's the call, to welcome and to love. And so while it may seem like ancient history, it's something true for us today. To think about the ways that we live when we practice our faith. So may your faithfulness, your convictions be expressed in faithfulness, not in contempt or judging. Let us be a place that welcomes and loves, acknowledging that we're all at a different place. Let us be a place that welcomes. Amen.